0: the closeness of the Kennedy family was uncomfortable for Peter. Joe Kennedy had once commented that his children were so close to each other that he was surprised they had ever married. The relationship was not incestuous, yet it did not leave room for an outsider who could not adjust. Oh, we need to talk about the Kennedy siblings. Episode 14. Welcome to Blood and Business. I'm Bethany. And I'm Cassie. Which is a wow, literally echo of what we talked about in KFM 13. And no, I had not read this. Wow. Peter once said that going up against the Kennedys was like going against a panzer division. They could be brutal, even in fun. Perhaps Peter's worst moment came during a visit to the family home in Cape Cod. A touch football game was held, something in which Peter participated reluctantly. Because of the way in which he had been raised, because of his infirmity, Peter was not comfortable playing team sports. Working as part of a team, being struck by others, engaging in sports in general were all foreign to Peter. Thus, he did not know what to expect when Steve Smith told the others to get Peter. Quote unquote. (laughs) Suddenly, the touch part of the game became tackle. Peter was struck several times and the wind was knocked out of him. He was upset, feeling that they had brutalized him because he was <laughs> an only child, never knowing a family in the way they did. He felt that some of them, such as Steve Smith, which that's Jean's husband, which we will talk about later, wanted to put him down to show him his place. That's what he felt. Peter felt that in other ways, the family seemed to like him and respect his profession, but Peter said that Steve Smith, who became powerful by virtue of his handling of the family foundation, which controls all their wealth, acted like a schoolyard bully toward him. Wow. Well, they were bonded with a profundity that mere blood seemed insufficient to describe. Precisely. The other thing that Peter was disturbed by was Eunice at dinner time. <laughs> Eunice Kennedy Shriver always disturbed Peter when they had to eat together. Peter said that she would eat off the plates of other people. He was (laughs) literally me. If he was sitting next to her and she became intrigued by something on his plate, she would just reach over and taste whatever caught her fancy. (laughs) It was an action that always frustrated and angered him. Oh my God. Which sounds like Mac. Mac. (laughs) It is literally Mac. And I hate it when you guys have been sharing food. (laughs) She had also talked that There was no room in the Kennedy family for others, for in-laws, unless they were prepared to like come in and take their place. Like we said, you had to shove your own way in to the Kennedy family and not every personality was able to do that. Back to Peter's fourth wife. I'm going to read what she says about Peter in correlation to the Kennedy's. Peter, because of his own childhood, slipped nicely into a dual role of abuser and abused during this period. He allowed himself to be subjected to activities that he found demoralizing and humiliating. Playing football and being tackled in front of everyone. I wouldn't exactly say that that's the same thing, but okay. He accepted the role of an outsider, bearing his pain without letting Pat see the extent of his vulnerability. He just just felt like a freaking outsider. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, he played out the role that Joe Kennedy had played. He sexually indulged himself, never committing fully to the woman for whom he expressed love. Peter's attitude toward Pat Kennedy probably saved her some of the emotionally shattering sexual requests Peter made of me. Her Catholic upbringing, her nightly prayers, and her other acts of devotion were unnerving for him. They had not had sex before their marriage, Pat probably being a virgin. He could not show her that intercourse gave him less pleasure than sensual experiences involving less physical and emotional commitment. He could not tell her the things that he liked to do. That again shows he had some understanding of the perversion. Right. And that it wasn't necessarily healthy or appropriate. During the Kennedy years, he had to seek satisfaction outside the home, a fact that destroyed his marriage by the time Jack Kennedy was in his second year in office. Peter, oh, go ahead. That also makes me think that Pat had even less choice, I think. Because he just shut it down. Yeah. Yeah. Like he was hiding so much from her. Mm -hmm. So not only was she feeling like very uncomfortable and blindsided by all of these things, he also still wasn't telling her the full truth. And so she didn't have the opportunity to fully connect with him. Yeah. Yeah, because there was always a huge part of himself that she never knew. Yeah. So it, it almost prevented them from ever having a truly intimate relationship. Yeah, and and made him probably seem a lot more calloused and careless right, than and he actually was. Yeah. He He was more was, ashamed. He was trying not to show her how much of a victim he was. And if she was able to see that more, maybe she would have had more understanding of the struggle that it was and less like you just don't care that I'm your wife. Right. You're, you're just choosing to, yeah. to cheat. That also makes me think that Pat and Peter would have been able to work it out if they were in a different time, a different place, if they had the education and the knowledge and the resources Mm -hmm. to work through that and to understand each other better. I think so much of it was like with Jackie and Jack, the miscommunication and like they both had these secret desires to be close, but they didn't feel safe enough because of their pasts or... Of because of what they thought about themselves to the open culture. up the culture, yeah, exactly. It was the upbringing, like it Rose. was the upbringing. And for some reason, Ethel and Bobby were able to be so vulnerable and safe with each other. Maybe just because they both innately had like less internal issues, almost, yeah, to, like less baggage, less trauma. They were both like a little bit. I definitely think healthier. that Bobby had less trauma, first of all, just the physical, right the mortality hanging over his head all the time. He didn't go to war to actual combat like Jack did. He didn't have the lack of intimacy with his mother that Jack did. I just think that— well, And Rose, losing— Losing— Yeah, the whole Rosemary situation. Even Jr. as a kid, I think that Jack saw a lot of that way more up close than Bobby would have ever seen. Yeah. And, and was in charge of protecting that in a way as well. Right. And and even just the isolation, just the going to the hospital by yourself for months mm-hmm. and being poked and prodded and, and just having just- the young version of Joe Sr. and Rosa's parents instead of the more mature, yep, kind of grown into it understanding of Yeah. Mm-hmm. The oldest definitely think the brunt with the parenting. And I think that the more the older Jack got, the more trauma piled on, the more severe his coping skills. Needed to sustain him. Right. So the worse his behavior became. became. Yeah. And the more like isolated and protected. Um, his right. His true self became as well. Mm-hmm. And Bobby was just able to be softer. Himself. Yeah. yeah. Um, But they were a lot closer. And then also it seems like Eunice and Sarge were a little bit more honest and vulnerable with each other as well. But they almost, yeah, didn't have the issues to expose like the rest of them did. And yeah. So there was less of a need to like protect their true selves in a way. They had less skeletons in the closet, essentially. There are several, several stories that I'm flipping past, skipping over. Because in KFM 15, we are going to talk all about the Frank Sinatra with Judith Campbell-Exner, with Jack, with Sam Jean Kana. That timeline is just too much to do it all in one. So KFM 15 is going to be another story-based episode. But we are going to talk about Jack in relation to Peter. So Kennedy was still undergoing rehabilitation therapy for his back injury when Peter met him. Kennedy weighed only 130 pounds at the time and had none of the vigor of his later years. Yet Peter liked him instantly. This was just after World War II. My immediate reaction was that there was no bullshit with him. He was very straightforward and had a marvelous sense of humor. I knew there was a force in the room when I shook his hand. I felt that he was a rather extraordinary fellow. And then this is on Peter's perspective of Jack's back injury and his ability to cope. Peter told me that a medical technician followed Jack everywhere, carrying a syringe filled with what I believe was a cortisone tri... A cortisone cream. A cortisone? (laughs) A cortisone-type drug. It was meant to be injected immediately if the president's back went out. The partial disability he had was so severe that he could suddenly find himself unable to move. The attacks could be both intense and without warning. Oh, my gosh. The only way he could continue would be with an immediate injection of the drug. Peter said that it was not unusual to see the technician jab the needle right through Kennedy's suit in order to inject him as quickly as possible. This dude's job is just to follow Jack around with a syringe, waiting, watching and waiting for him to just seize up. Perhaps Kennedy's ways of handling his disability were rather immature, but Peter admired the way the man did not let himself live the life of a cripple, despite being in almost constant pain. Yep. Yep. No matter what else might be said of him, when it came to facing personal adversity, he showed remarkable courage. Kennedy was also impressed with Peter, if only because Peter was an actor. Quote He had an affinity for Hollywood and its personalities that I think came from his father. He would read weekly Variety voraciously. After he was president, he would sometimes ring me up and tell me what the grosses were on new films. He was that kind of fellow. (laughs) (laughs) Just spitting backs over the phone. like, and this Friday, my fair lady did so well. I don't know when my fair lady came up. I think it was the 50s. I have no fucking idea. Peter met Eunice Kennedy in 1949 when he was on a promotional tour in Washington, D.C. for the movie The Red Danube. I don't know what that means. I think it's a different language. It was an MGM film and typical of the time, it had an anti-Soviet theme. Whether through a sense of humor or because she had not seen the picture, Eunice took Peter to a cocktail party at the Russian embassy. A couple of the Russians had seen the film and began making rather nasty remarks about it. Peter, rather frightened, quietly told Eunice that they had better make their escape. <laughs> I don't know what the heck Eunice was Like, was Eunice aware? Yeah, was she aware? I can't tell. If she's just so busy, she has no clue, probably. Or if she's like, boy, come at me. We'll talk about it. Yeah, this is a riot. (laughs) Peter saw Eunice occasionally after that. I thought that Eunice and Peter, like, just met, period. And Eunice introduced Pat to Peter, as in, like, just introduced them. Like, they were friends. Eunice and Peter dated. Uh, can you imagine? No, I can't. What? She's like, you need it past- my Hollywood sister. Yeah, she's like, I'm the wrong Kennedy for you, honey, but let me book you up. <laughs> wow. Can you imagine? How did they make it past date one? I don't understand. Truly. Like, truly. Peter saw Eunice occasionally after that, but it was when she was attending the 1952 Republican convention that he met Pat Kennedy the woman who would become his first wife. Peter had become friends with a number of wealthy, influential Eastern business leaders, including Henry Ford. And so Peter was at the convention, just like interested.
1: Is he hanging out with Eunice? As the the Kennedys Kennedys are
0: at the convention, just interested. And I think that Eunice was just like, oh, perfect. Y'all can meet. Okay. But neither of them are Republicans. They're just like hanging out at this Republican convention. You know what? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Pat and Peter began talking, each intrigued by the other. Then later that year is when Peter's father died, Sir Sidney Lawford, and Pat sent that sympathy note. Yes. So they had, I guess, just like, met each other, each other in passing. Yeah, they were never dating. That's so interesting. I am bothered by the idea that Peter was, at times, the procurer of women for his brother-in-law. A true statement people do not wish to face. Kitty Kelly claimed in her book on Sinatra that Peter felt that Frank Sinatra was a pimp for Kennedy and he, Peter, was the procurer for Sinatra. I doubt that Peter felt this way and I doubt that such a scenario was true. Sinatra, unlike Kennedy, had no need to hide his women from the press. But Peter admitted to myself and others that he obtained women for Kennedy, a duty he felt someone had to fulfill. Jack Kennedy was handsome, rich, and powerful a combination that many women find the ultimate aphrodisiac. Yet he was president of the United States, a man constantly before the public eye. He was given privacy when he stayed with Peter and Pat, yet that was only inside the house. Hollywood columnist Jim Bacon, who covered Kennedy's visits to the West Coast, mentioned a time when he was able to meet Kennedy on the grounds of Peter Laffer's home. The president was going into the ocean for a swim and asked Bacon to hold his sweatshirt, which badly needed laundering. When he entered the water, a photographer went in after him, though the photographer was fully clothed. There must have been a thousand people standing around trying to get a glimpse of him, Bacon commented, a situation that was not conducive to privacy. Peter was in a position to arrange for meetings where Kennedy could have privacy with a woman. If the woman was in show business, such as Marilyn Monroe, it was easy for Peter to travel with her or be seen with her. Two actors out together implied business, especially if there was no hint of an intimate relationship. Thus, Peter could obtain the women, help them enter either his own home or some other rendezvous location, then discreetly step aside when Kennedy arrived. Here are some more anecdotes and stories that that show you Peter's character and how he treated people. This is Joey Bishop who was part of the Rat Pack and he said, I looked like I didn't belong but was aware of the fact that I didn't belong and tried to act like I belonged and it worked great. It was a great, great attitude. (laughs) What was great about Peter Lawford or Frank or Sammy or Dean was that whatever line I thought of at the spur of the moment, they never questioned it. One time when Dean was singing, we were always wearing tuxedos. I said to the others, I think it would be very funny if we all took our pants off, folded them neatly over our arms, and walked across stage behind Dean while he's singing and pretended we're discussing business. It was one of the biggest laughs. Peter was very gracious to me. I remember that I was the master of ceremonies for the inaugural. Even though I was the least known of the group, I was treated as an equal, and that always felt good to me. Aww. Oh, that's precious. I remember one time in Miami Beach, we were going down to the Fontainebleau for Elvis Presley's first show out of the Army. And the accommodations were, everybody had a suite on the 15th floor, and they gave me a room on the 7th floor. But Frank didn't know it, so he said to Peter, assuming I was also on the 15th floor, run down the hall and get Joey. I want to rehearse something. So Peter said, Joey's not on the 15th floor. He's on the 7th floor. Frank said, what's he doing on the 7th floor? Peter said, they gave him a room there. So Frank called up and said, if Joey Bishop is not in a suite on the 15th floor within five minutes, there'll be no show tonight. (laughs) I don't know this. I'm in my room writing some material. Six bellhops came running in. They didn't take out my clothes. They took the drawers in it with the hangers and everything. I thought the place was on fire. (laughs) I remember one time when I got a call from Peter Lawford. He said, I want you to come down to Malibu. He had a home down there. He said, "I just signed with the best manager, and I want you to sign with him too." So I said, "I do have a manager." He said, "Joey, this is your chance of a lifetime. Listen to me and do like I'm telling you." <laughs> so I said, "Okay," and I went down there. The manager was John F. Kennedy. He wanted me to come by the house. He was. What? Th- he was there with Pat. He, it was just like a ruse, like he was just getting him down there that by saying, like he thought. It's okay. a business deal for me. Yeah. And he's This saying, is no, what's I'm gonna get him. To this, yeah. He wanted it to be a surprise. He was there with Pat. John Kennedy was in the ocean. He said he's in the water now. And I didn't know it was John Kennedy. I thought it was a manager. So I was kind of flattered. It was exciting for me. <laughs> Picturing him minding his own business has no idea that there's any issue. These bellhops, just come busting, busting through, through the, the doors, door, throwing drawers. He's like, <laughs> he's like the kid in like, the Incredible. Of course, you would think that the place was on fire. Yeah, I'm panicked. Also, I'm wondering if Frank Sinatra was an eight, an enneagram eight. Oh, for sure. Like as soon as you said that, exactly that. Yes, he's such a like loyalist. Will fight for his people, uh-huh. but doesn't necessarily care that it's the right thing. No, he's just when Frank Sinatra was nice, he was real nice. Mm-hmm. Kennedy's involvement with the Klan, which is not the The Klan. Klan. (laughs) It is The the Rat Pack. Oh, The Rat Pack. Kennedy's involvement with the Rat Pack meant more at the time than people understand today. Sammy Davis was a Black man who was daring to live in a white man's world. Racial hatred was intense, and top Black entertainers were relegated to ghetto theaters such as the Apollo in Harlem. Many major Black stars of the 1960s were actually in their decline, having not been allowed to perform before mixed audiences during the many years they were at their peak talent. They had been deprived of an audience and the whites had been deprived of the chance to see brilliance in a person who happened to be black. Peter was disgusted as he explained to me that racial prejudice was so great that when he and the others went gambling, Peter had to take Sammy's money and play for him as Sammy directed. It was a combination of bigoted paternalism and irrational fear. Yet, whatever the cause, the result was great pain and daily humiliation. Men with lesser inner strengths than Sammy were often broken in spirit. The first time they tried to break the meaningless color barrier, they were so emotionally hurt that they gave up show business entirely. For Jack Kennedy to be seen with the clan, the Rat, rat hack, Pack, meant risking hostility in the South. He was not an advocate of civil rights. He was not a man who had ever had to confront the racial issue in his home state. If anything, he was for the status quo at that time. Yet the act of being seen with Sammy and the other members of the group could have cost him critical votes in the South, and he did not seem to care. It was a circumstance that spoke well for his character at a time when other men might have just avoided the entire issue. To me, it seems like he was just born in a bubble, grew up in a bubble, and the bubble- Wasn't racist. No. (laughs) But because of that, he didn't know that he needed to be doing a better job at finding it. Because he was just like, God loves all of us. My back hurts, so. (laughs) Another story about Sammy Davis Jr. and the Kennedys and racial injustice was that, I'm just going to tell this off of my memory. When Jack had just won the election, Pat and Peter went straight from- Him winning the election that morning at 9 a.m., 9.30 a.m., got on a plane and went back to California to attend Sammy Davis Jr.'s wedding. They were friends, obviously, and at the wedding— And Sammy Davis Jr. is a part of the Rat Pack? Yes, and he's the black one. Okay, and so is Peter, obviously, a part of the Rat Pack? Yes. (laughs) Like, Peter's not black. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Pat was at the wedding, and she gave Sammy Davis Jr. a kiss on the cheek just as a congratulations Mm -hmm. they their friends. Somebody took a picture of it and the media got a hold of it blasted it everywhere and said all these very very derogatory hateful things and those southern states were basically like going against the kennedys because of their involvement with black people i don't know because they were because pat was friends with black people it was like hurting those southern states view, view of, of, Jack, of the kennedys which of their is president absolutely elect. ridiculous but it's confusing to me because somebody and i need to do more research to figure out who but frank sinatra was in charge of the inaugural ball performers he was he was in charge of the entertainment for i think i don't know if it was the night before the inauguration or the night of the inauguration the event was put on to basically raise money a bunch of like huge big name performers were coming in to help and to perform as like a, like a favor, banquet. yeah, as like a favor to Frank Sinatra because they were friends, and then but it was yeah like a charity event to raise funds for the presidency or for the government so that when Jack came in office, he wouldn't have this huge deficit of debt. But anyway, somebody and I don't know who, probably some one of the Kennedy advisors, political advisors, took Sammy Davis Jr. off of the inter, off of the performing bill. Sammy Davis Jr. was not allowed to perform because of the photo with Pat at his wedding of her kissing him. So Frank is pissed off and he was about to just fly off the handle and lose it. But we'll revisit that story. During the main episode, we mentioned that Frank Sinatra campaigned for Jack, but Sinatra also put out a song for Jack and his campaign, which was called High Hopes, and he rewrote the lyrics to say, K-E-N-N-E-D-Y. Jack's the nation's favorite guy. Everyone wants to back Jack. Jack is on the right track and he's got high hopes. High apple pie in the sky hopes. And it was loaded into jukeboxes across the country. Are we going to talk about Frank Sinatra and his motives with the Kennedys? Do we ever talk about that? A little bit we did. Okay. That he wanted to be- Grabbing onto the coattails of communities? Yeah, and he wanted to be associated with statesmen, not mobsters. Right, okay. We're going to talk so much more about Frank Sinatra next episode too. There's just so much. I just read a story that we're going to talk about in KFM 15. Murder. Murder. Uh, Actual murder? Murder in KFM 15. Oh. But- Jack was very 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 interested in Hollywood similar to his dad similar to Pat and he we said that he like was watching how much the films would gross each week so similar to Joe senior knowing where all of the kids were what what all the kids were doing and writing letters to each one of them telling them just what they need to hear. Jack would like have a line of movie stars. Whenever he was president, he would just go down the line shaking their hand and he'd be like, "You were great in this." And he would know exactly what their projects each were just off the dome. Off the dome like he just knew what was happening cuz he was just interested. He just loved he it. He was always interested in like pop culture, I feel like. Yeah. And just in the know with that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And could you imagine being an actor and being like the president? Knows exactly what I'm doing. Cares and knows what I'm doing. (laughs) Here's a really fun anecdote about Pat growing up. This is told from Rose's perspective. Quote, Gloria Swanson was our house guest for a couple of days in Bronxville and brought along her small daughter, who was about the age of our Pat, who was about 10. The two got along well together, and Pat took her down to show her the Bronxville Public School and meet her classmates and perhaps show off a little, as she did, introducing her as Gloria Swanson's daughter. Nobody believed her. They all just grinned, thinking it was a joke. After all, Gloria Swanson was, to them, practically a supernatural being. So she wouldn't be in Bronxville and wouldn't have a daughter. And Pat was just doing some silly spoofing. I can't recall the exact details, but I do remember how completely indignant Pat was when she and Gloria's little girl came home and told us. <laughs> Poor little Pat. But I think that it fed more into that like obsession and enthrallment with like Celebrity. stars and yeah. celebrities and mystery and like people don't even believe it's like a world beyond belief and she's just drawn to it. I didn't even realize that Gloria Swanson was that because we did a mini set over her. If you Mm -hmm. haven't listened to that, you have to go on Patreon, listen to that mini-sode. It is fascinating. It's definitely one of my favorites because it has such a 1920s vibe. Yes. And it just paints a better picture of Joe Sr. I think like prior to like the Joe Sr. we know, sort of. Right. It was the Joe Sr. with tiny little kids, not with his son's ambassadorship said, exactly. Stuff. So that's really interesting. But I, like when we were doing those minisodes, I don't think I understood how huge of a star Gloria Swanson was. But the fact Agreed. that the kids didn't even believe, like there's no way that she would be in Bronxville. Yeah. And also that she was dating Joe Sr. Like, whoa. I know. This story also props up the idea that Pat didn't even really understand or get who these women were because- Right. Because she's like taking, yeah, she's not realizing, oh, this is, is my Johnson, dad's mistress. Who's hurting my mother and my family dynamic. This little girl yeah. belongs to her. And the only reason she's here is because her mom is having an affair with my dad. Yeah, like Pat was not, she was literally showing her off to her friends at school, not realizing I'm showing off my my father's mistress. Who I should be jealous of and annoyed that she's like crashing my family And like embarrassed party. of. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, that's true. Like Pat was clearly- In a fairy tale world. Yeah. I had no idea what was going on. Oh my gosh. Those poor girls. That also makes me think of Marlene, Marlene mm-hmm. Dietrich, her mm-hmm. whole story where the kids just are like being drug along. Oh my gosh. Like they just don't know what's even going on or like what's normal. It also is weird how Pat is like the same person as she was. The same She grows up and is still the same little fangirl and like starstruck like you were saying. And how different the Kennedys celebrity was. Like they were celebrities. They were famous. They were in newspapers all the time.
1: But But I think it was because
0: they were famous for being themselves. They were famous for being real. Yeah, like and 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 it was like the academic like political world. It was not and the actors and actresses were famous for being pretend for exaggerating themselves and glamorizing themselves and basically playing a character or being a different person. They were larger than life. It's like Catherine Hudson versus Katy Perry. Yeah, but the Kennedys were just Pat Kennedy and Pat Kennedy was Pat Kennedy. And also, too, maybe that it wasn't that a single one of them was like they weren't Elvis. Right. They were the Kennedys, then Glorious Watson is Glorious mm-hmm. Watson, the one and the only. Probably a lot of pressure comes with that as well that the Kennedy kids didn't have. Yeah. They didn't have to stay famous. They didn't have to. Yes, that makes me think of Paul McCartney said something to that extent um, that he f- always felt really bad for Elvis because he couldn't imagine. Because yeah. he was obviously a part of the Beatles, so he was like, uh, so much of the pressure was taken off of me. I can imagine having to do having that much fame and attention on my own. On well, having else. to having to keep it up. Yeah, like that. I mean, it crushed a- him. He yeah. couldn't do it. It's like Haley Williams. Yeah, I don't want to be the Haley Williams show. I want to be Paramore. Yeah, it's like they have a a shield, a built in shield that sibling spring that Peter Offer didn't have. Yeah. The Kennedys were the Sunday School Circus. They were the clean mm-hmm. version mm-hmm. compared to everyone around them. If you think about Marilyn Monroe's life, you think about Peter Lawford's life, Frank Sinatra. They yeah. were so privileged. The Kennedys on so many levels. Yeah, and that's really cool that they were aware of that. But you, like, I still view them as like scandalous and obviously promiscuous. Right. They were freaking doing meth and sleeping around. And they were the Sunday school version of Hollywood. Yeah. Of and that's why Pat got eaten alive. Mm-hmm. She, didn't, she didn't expect it. And even Jackie and Lee, like they were still very, they had a rough childhood, but it was as like far as fairly neglect, normal rough childhood. But I don't think that, yeah. So Joe Nair is the one who said, that he watched Jack just, like, walk down the line of actors and actresses and, and, and comment. And he's Peter's friend, right? Yes. Like very close, close friends. friends. Okay. Um, And he said that there were a wide range of guests, producers, agents, like, he just knew everybody. Quote, He knew you personally and liked you. He had that ability to make you feel important. Literally. Said everyone. Everyone about all the candidates. All of them. Peter explained... He was always ringing up and I'm not trying to make myself a big man by saying the president was always ringing me up because I'm sure he was always ringing up a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> Lee, Jackie doesn't know how fun it is. I can get anyone on the phone in two seconds. And the quote about, uh, I think it was Lem that said it about Jackie and Jack, no matter who they yep. were talking to at a party, they made you feel like there was no one that they'd rather be talking to or spending time with than you. Absolutely crazy. And I think that that was because of Rose and Joe's parenting because they, it's like, um, in what was it? Episode 13, Joe getting in the car with a chauffeur to go pick up the cousin. It was like, you were important. Every single person. This is the never ending bottomless pit of energy that Jack had that we were, and that Joe senior had that we we're just like, what were you on? Because Joe senior was not on meth. And so it was more than just the injections. Peter said that Jack would call all the time and just want to know what was happening. Who was making it with whom? What pretty new girls were on scene? His interest was everywhere. He'd bring up and say, what's going on? What about so-and-so? Is she really that pretty? Imagine. Even with all the things that he had to worry about. Like, even Peter is like, how, dude? How can you care? There's like this bit of mania to them, yes. right? Like, uh-huh. it reminds me of people who... Are on hardcore drugs or, or have, have an, a disorder. Yes. And have mania, bouts of mania.
1: Crazy. That is
0: so interesting. hmm And I wonder if some of it was like, because you can have like socially induced mania kind of, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. um, it's not seasonal, but it's like based on the events in your life, like depression due to an event Versus depression, that's just a chemical imbalance, right? right? I wonder if it's because their their life yeah. was so. It was like a an experience. It circumstantial was them induced a rush. High. Yeah, it was giving them, like the chemical well, rush was there. Their I, brain was like hitting a bit of hypomania. Yes, because of the people that they were meeting, the things that they were doing. It's like when you go and that importance that they felt. Yeah, like I wondered that we went to the Taylor Swift concert. And it was a three and a half hours long. And at the end of it, I was exhausted, could barely stay awake. Two hours in, I was just thinking to myself, like, it is hard for me to freaking stand here in the seat. How is she still going? Like, how is she doing this? And it has to be that adrenaline rush, that Mm -hmm. like hit of endorphins that it just gave that it gives you more energy. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, this next part is from the same interview that I used in episode 13 from cousin Mary Lou McCarthy. Quote, but I remember years later when he was coming from that awful time that he had after he married Jacqueline and then he was very down and depressed and things were kind of bad with the recovery of the back. It seemed to me that I had read the story that she had had Grace Kelly come in at the time and I don't know whether she was married to the prince or not, but that she had come in and dressed as a little nurse and had brought the pills and the water and whatnot amidst great laughter and gaiety. It kills me every—the the pills, the, the recovery of the, back. the recovery of <laughs> the, the water. Back. So I think those that have loved Jack through the years when he's been down or had a bad time have always found that lovely sense of humor was down-bubbling underneath, and that if you could just surprise him with something that he didn't expect, he would just rise right up to the occasion. He'd be delightful afterwards. Wait, Jackie had Grace Kelly come in and dress up as a nurse to surprise Jack? (laughs) That was exactly my question. I'm like, okay, Mary Lou, how credible are you? Is this a real story? What What are you talking about? So I looked it up and I found this other interview. Gallico. Was this the first time that you had met the president? Grace Kelly. Actually, no. The first time was before he became the president. During that year, he was in the hospital in New York with his back. I had been to a dinner party where I met Mrs. Kennedy and her sister, Lee, for the first time. They asked me to go to the hospital with them to pay a visit and help cheer him up. They wanted me to go into his room and say I was the new night nurse. Gallico. That was a quaint idea. Did you? Grace. Well, I hesitated. I was terribly embarrassed. Eventually, I was sort of pushed into his room by the two girls. I introduced myself, but he had recognized me at once and couldn't have been sweeter or more quick to put me at ease. Which after reading the insight from Joe Nair or Nair, I still don't know which which one his (laughs) name is, but it's interesting knowing what he said about Jack, like how he knew everybody, you know, every, every actor, every actress, every director and knew what they were doing makes me realize that Jackie maybe thought that Grace would just look like a hot nurse basically for a little while until he figured it out, but she walks in the room and instantly, instantly. she ar- he already knows. Like she's you, like, hey, Grace, what are you doing? Freaking impressive because, like, you're not expecting her to walk through the doors at this random hospital to see Jack. He knew her face and he knew it well. This episode is showing me so many sides to people that I feel like we haven't really gotten to see before, but I love. This about Jackie and Lee. I feel like when they're together, it's like the story in the boobie episodes about. Oh my gosh, how they were I on a boat, it, yeah. and then the guy was like, "What are you guys talking about? What are you guys whispering Michael about?" Michael Canfield. It was Michael yes. Canfield. Okay, so Lee's first husband uh-huh. was like, "What are you guys whispering about?" And they both just turn and in unison say, "Gloves." Gloves. <laughs> I mean, they're just like so, Jackie much and listen. Lee. It's crazy going back and forth between Jackie by herself and well, first we started with. Lee and Jackie then seeing Jackie by herself was totally different Jackie in the context of the Kennedys is totally different and then going back and talking about Jackie, Jackie how Lee. she is with Lee yeah. yes it's like a different person she just all of her like little kid Jackie came out yes I love it okay here's another sad story about the campaign era so Peter's dad passed away we remember that right? So that's when Pat wrote him a letter, Sir Sidney Lawford, and he was still married to his mom. Lady May, Peter's mom. Well, when he died, Lady May's already poor mental health took another nosedive, and she became so bitter towards the Kennedy family, towards Pat for mar- marrying her wonderful little boy. And she literally rented. A live elephant, even though she was living off of Peter's money. She was being completely supported by Peter. She used that money to rent an elephant, a live elephant. She painted across the elephant's side, vote for Nixon, and rode it down Wilshire Boulevard in the middle of Los Angeles. Obviously, the elephant is the symbol of the Republican Party. So she's literally trying to... Take a public stand against the Kennedy family, basically, which is her son or which is her son's family, yes, during the campaign. Vote for Nixon. It was just an out of control situation, but that just is wow, yeah, it's not a good situation. but um, Joe nair, Joe Narr, Peter's best friend, said that there was a time also when he went over to her house to meet her. Peter took. Joe over to his mom's house to meet her. And he said, Hey, this is Joe. He's getting into television. And Lady May said, Oh yeah, you're getting into to television. This is my set. Can you fix it? She like, quote unquote, wanted him to work on her television set. Like she was trying to say, I think you're a mechanic. I think you're a like blue collar television set repairman. And Peter had to say, shut up, mother. He's wanting to get into television as an agent. And it was obviously like very much on purpose. Wow. And Joe said that Peter never apologized for his mother, but he did handle her attitude. He said very well, more like probably more than most people would have. Wow. Lady May's bitterness for the Kennedy family continued. It was best explained when she became irate after the president's death, when she was invited to a film covering his brief life and career. Her refusal stated, in part, quote, I am no longer going to ask for insults. Before Peter's wedding, I was invited to lunch alone with Mr. Kennedy and later a dinner alone with Mrs. Kennedy. Quite incorrect. I guess she wanted both of them at the same time. (laughs) I was not allowed my correct place at the pre-wedding dinner. I was put in the corner alone with a priest. My escort for the wedding was a strange man, a police inspector, not one of the ushers or the family, which is correct. During the campaign for Mr. Kennedy's $100 plate, Mrs. Lawford offered me a ticket. She said, if you can find someone to let you sit at their table. (laughs) Rose is like, I'm trying to help you fend for your freaking self too. (laughs) Oh, this this part's so sad. I invited the children to a small party in the house. Mrs. Lawford said, much too far away. Besides, they are flying to Florida in a day or so. So this is Pat saying, my kids are not going to come by because it's too far away and they're going to Florida the next day. When? When Lady May asked for her grandkids to come visit. Okay. Peter has been in this house once, four years ago. Mrs. Lawford and the children never. I was invited to visit the children one hour about twice a month by the secretary. I asked the children, Do you know who I am? And they said, Yes, your name is May. I said, I am your grandmother. Both the children said, Thank you so much, but we already have one. (gasps) Thank you so much, but we already have one. And for sure, they weren't coached to say that. No, they're just having an organic conversation with Yes, your name is May. I'm your grandmother. Thank you so much. we we already have one. That's nice of you, but yeah, I appreciate um, the offer, but really, that's what's already taken quote, my dear Jack, just a line to let you know how things are going here. A lot of the same that you left behind, bureaucracy bullshit, and a president who can taste the second term in office so badly that he has created this false economy in which we are existing and the poor people are believing it. I can't wait for the deficit to start falling in on them and his kitchen group, and that's where they belong. Enough of that dreary stuff. I have managed to drink myself into the BFC. My liver drove me down, and here we are. It's a very pretty Stalag 17, which is supposed to help one back to the world of sobriety. I must say they do their best, and I'm sure it's helped me. You, my friend, would hate it. Not a pretty girl within miles. And every time you turn around, you trip over someone's ego or someone expressing an authoritarian spasm. Here they call it therapy. I know you're having a good time. You always do. Are you prez of anything? A garden club or a bowling team, perhaps? You must be running something, knowing you. Jackie is terrific. I spent a lot of time with her at Sydney's wedding. How are Marilyn, Bobby, unreadable? give them my love. If you should run into Steve McQueen or Vic Morrow, give them my best. Well, that's about it for now. Believe me, you are sorely missed, here and around the world, if I may say so. All the kids send their love. Let us hear from you soon. Take care of you. Love, Peter. Partial letter from Peter Lawford to his late brother-in-law, John F. Kennedy, written while undergoing treatment in 1984 for alcohol and drug addiction at the Betty Ford Center in Rancho Mirage, California. Join us here next week to hear all about what Bobby really meant to the presidency and to his brother. Eunice and Sarge's love story. And the catastrophic disaster that, according to Jackie, left Jack inconsolable for three days. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please give us a review on Apple, rate us on Spotify, and share Blood and Business with a friend or a sibling. If you'd like to support the show, the best way is to become a patron of Blood and Business. You will get bonus content every month, including a monthly bonus episode, interactive main episodes, and behind-the-scenes footage. To keep up with us day to day, you can follow us at Blood and Business on Instagram and TikTok. You can find the link for Instagram, TikTok, and Patreon in the show notes below. Thank you so much for the support and we will see you back here next week for your regularly scheduled programming on Blood and Business. Are you kidding? Huh? I said I barf. I'm so, 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 so. You're sorely missed. I just wanted to give him an update. Literally, like, what, 22 years later? Jeez. I've drank myself into the BFC, unfortunately. 1984. And he died in 63, so yeah, 21 years. Gee, man. It's like love letters to the dead. It's mm, like yeah, writing... Letters to her dead sister. Sister, I just cannot imagine like wanting to to be able to like call someone or tell them. No, oh my gosh, like I they would be so thrilled by this or like I feel that way when I'm like on vacation without you Mm -hmm. and I'm so sad Mm -hmm. and like literally you chose not to come. (laughs) (gasps) No shade. (laughs) No, but I'm just saying. Like I feel so sad. I can't imagine. Like literally not being able to ever tell them. Yeah, that's so sad. Well, for decades at least. And like you've had to live a whole life without them. And like it's just wrong. It's like the whole kick thing. Like that just wasn't how it was supposed to go. It wasn't supposed to be. Someone was talking to me on Instagram about them being sad. Like them thinking about. Because, oh, they were saying, oh, Frank Sinatra died in like. 98 or something, like almost the 2000s. Wow. And he lived such a long life and he was so close in age to Jack mm-hmm. and how crazy yeah. that is that Jack would have lived he or could have lived such mm-hmm. a long life and basically should have just died. And I was like, I think about that way too often. Yeah. How different America would be, America would be, how different his kids' lives would have been and what they would have done. And that maybe his son wouldn't have even freaking died. And then I also think about Bobby and how different his 11 kids' lives would have been. How different Ethel's life would have been. It's just wild. That's one of those things that would have definitely, definitely impacted history and affected. Like things would be different. It would be a different world. Like the butterfly effect. Oh my gosh. Like uh, yeah. the bomb effect. Like Yeah. Like how far ahead could we be in so many different areas? Especially with how much the Kennedys specifically were doing, JFK and RFK, mm-hmm. if they would have had three times longer. Yeah. Uh, if if Bobby Kennedy long, would have been president, yeah. like even more than Jack, if Bobby Kennedy would have been president. Yeah. If he could have just lived four more years, even. Mm hmm. Or if girls could have freaking been president and Eunice could have taken his seat. Absolutely. Spot. Yeah. Uh, I'm so excited to get into that though into post JFK what oh. Bobby does and how he feels and the impact of that on the siblings but getting there is also thrilling and so overwhelming I'm holding my breath holding my breath but here we go here we go off to Neverland ooh